in the darkest worlds that ever were. The only thing that brings light are stories. Those stories are kept in one place. The tiny bookcase. Hello, explorers of the Sacred Library. I'm Ben. I'm Nico, and you're listening to The Tiny Bookcase. We are joined today by a horror writer who can turn his hand to short or long-form tales in the genre. His novella, A Song for the End, is currently on the shortlist for the best novella at the 2021 British Fantasy Society Awards. He also blogs and podcasts regularly, and is firmly rebel scum. Rebel scum. Sorry, couldn't resist. It is our pleasure to welcome Kit Power. Great name. Hey, how you doing? Great to be here. We are definitely getting sued by Disney for that, Nico. <laughs> it wasn't that good. Oh, was... that. They're quite litigious. <laughs> <laughs> well, next week's The Tiny Bookcase, What If? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's brilliant to have you, Kit. I know you you actually uh, you run a podcast with um, a previous guest of ours, RJ Barker. Yeah. Um, Rhysopolis, which, um, which sounds very cool indeed as well. And you've you've just written so many horror stories and, and other things. It's 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 actually quite intimidating to have to read in front of you. It has to be said. Oh no, I'm. Don't worry about it. I'm I'm a very chilled out human being. It's <laughs> and I'm still. I yeah. I mean, for whatever it's worth, I still very much consider myself someone who's figuring out how to do this. So I mean, I actually I listen to a couple of the shows. I really I really dig the format of what you're doing because I think one of the things I'm quite keen about is where you can demystifying writing and the writing process i think some people have a real kind of addiction to the mystification and i love how i love the way your show you just get under the hood of the stories and actually you know you you do the reading and then you you have a conversation about them what worked and what didn't and the mechanics mm. of it and i think i'm i'm really in favor of that so i was really really happy to get the invite and i'm really grateful that you you invited me on so i'm looking forward to this We're extremely grateful to have you <laughs> Yeah, that's really cool. The um, that, that idea of getting under the hood, I really like that. That um, it's a good feeling, and mm. I think it helps when you're in the doldrums when you're writing, and you can be like, no, there isn't anything magical happening here. I'm just, I'm just telling a story. I just need to start typing. That's that's all that needs to happen, and then I'll figure it out later. It's fine. Yeah, um, get. I think one. Of, I mean, funny enough, I had a conversation with another writer friend of mine very recently because I have been going through a little bit of a difficult patch for me for a couple of reasons and the thing that came out of that was very much talking to each other and saying in the in the final analysis i think 90 percent of my problem is always forgetting to get out of my own way mm. in other words just get on with it just get on with it get the words down worry well, about the order later you know <laughs> well speaking of get on with it should we uh should we have some stories oh, cool. um so nico you're going to be going first and the prompt this week is the hardest break so i'm i'm gonna say something here we're we're breaking new ground today. In uh, let's say it's in Kit's honor. Why not? I'm going to yeah. read some non-fiction. When you say non-fiction, <laughs> ooh, you... that uh, <laughs> means it happened. It means it happened. But you're still telling a story, I guess, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's dolled up a bit because if I told the story, it would have a lot of swearing <laughs> and be a bit something of a, a memoir. Boring. Then, yeah. <laughs> well. <laughs> This has stemmed from, and we'll, we'll get into it a bit more, uh, a new genre I discovered the other day. <laughs> so we'll discuss that genre afterwards. 
Well, colour me intrigued. <laughs> the hardest break. When you work at a job you don't like, and this is a guess, really, because I don't think I've really liked any job that I've had to this point, time does strange things. You can work 20 minutes and feel like you've been there all day. I've had times where I look at the clock and it seems like it's earlier than it was the last time I glanced. But your break, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever, it just flies by. So Kermit says, time's fun when you're having flies, which makes me laugh every time. But it's a riff on an unbreakable truth. Happiness is the surest way to have time melt away so really quickly. Now it was late December when I got the call. It was a few minutes into my shift. And it changed a lot of how I saw the world. I say the call, but it was actually five or six. I didn't answer the first four uh, because I was on the shop floor and I wasn't even supposed to have my phone with me. But that insistent buzzing was seeming to bore its way through my thigh. So I hid behind a rack and dared a glance at my phone. Missed call. Mum. Missed call. Mum. Missed call. Mum. Missed call. Mum. I was a few too many years past being out late or having broken something in the house. I hadn't even lived there for at least half a decade, but... You know those memes, the one where it shows 97 missed calls and has a caption like, Guess I'm in trouble. Well, it floated into my mind. It's unusual, mostly, because we don't really have a calling each other relationship. I love her, obviously. I wouldn't be anything without her influence. I mean, literally, she provided a bunch of the ingredients that made me. But we don't share interests, so we don't talk too often. Plus, you know, we're both busy adults with our own problems and work, and... And I don't really know why I'm making excuses. <laughs> Maybe I'm not a great son. Maybe I should make the effort to call more. I won't, though. I know myself. So, I made an excuse to my boss, got someone to cover the till, and popped to the stockroom. It was ringing again, this time in my hand. Its insistent purring was sending waves of panic up my arm. Something instinctual was telling me this had to be bad. So I slid to answer, even as I was punching the code that would let me into the staff's safe haven. Truly, I can't remember the exact words of the call. I probably said something like, Hey mum, is everything okay? Because that's what you say, isn't it? It's the default when you know that everything isn't okay. You know, with as much anxiety as I have, I'm always working on the assumption that everything is not, in fact, okay. I like it when I'm proved wrong. This, of course, wasn't one of those times. She had cancer, in her lymph nodes, and it was fairly deep set. We'd already lost Gramps to it, and Nan had it too. It's in the blood. It's in my blood. I try not to think about that too often, but sometimes, when I slip and let my brain do the terrible things it likes to do to me, I think the diabetes isn't so bad, and I'd be okay with just that, because the promise of a slow... Painful descent into the abyss isn't a promise I want my body to keep. It makes me feel like a time bomb. I didn't know what questions to ask. Do you want me to come home? Which I did, of course, even though she said no. Um, can I do anything? 
what have the doctors told you? She was really good at remembering that stuff. She'd had to take a newborn into an office and suddenly learn everything about insulin and blood sugar levels. She's got a remarkable mind. So I just asked what came into my head, and she told me not to worry, which was a kind redundancy, because we both know that's not how things work. And I said, I have to go, I'm at work, and I'll call her later. And I walked back to the shop floor, numb. Put on that ever-so-helpful smile and prepared myself to answer questions and be a shining beacon of what our shop had to offer. I didn't scream or panic, I just... worked. I don't know how or why. If I'd said to my manager what i just learned, they might have sent me home, you know, made me a cup of tea, fed me everything-will-be-all-right platitudes. But I didn't. I just sold things and took abuse from customers and smiled that sickly customer service smile. And then break time arrived. You know, go eat some lunch, scroll through social media, laugh at some inane shit. I sat down and I held my Tesco meal deal like it was a cliff's edge. And I felt the universe collapse in on itself. That blessed distraction of a mundane miserable day job sliding aside to let the actual pain and sadness trickle in. And then the dam burst. And, and that feeling of lunch rushing by, I wanted it so badly. I, I didn't want to be on my own in a grey room filled with the inexorable ticking of an analogue clock and the soft hum of a fridge older than I am and my own shuddering breaths. And my mind span in circles. I couldn't lose my mum. That wasn't fair. This wasn't how the story goes. She's a tough East End girl and she wasn't going to die to some stupid fucking illness. But everyone dies. Just like you will. Just like everyone will. And I didn't eat. I didn't check my messages. I didn't do anything. I... Just sat alone for what felt like a million years, contemplating everything and resolving nothing. Questioning life choices, succumbing to the fear of mortality. Not my own. I don't care that much about myself. But the fragility of my mum, who hadn't done anything to deserve this, who was kind and fair and soft, who tried to teach me how to be decent, even when I was a slathering lunatic of a teenage boy who'd stood by my side when I had brushed with death, and then I'd laughed about it. And she never did. And I started to understand why. To see my failings, to understand that I could never repay the debt of humanity to my mother. And then the tinkle of my alarm happened. And my break was about to be over. So I stood, and I breathed, and I put that disgusting smile back on because she didn't want to fuss, she'd said that. Just like Gramps did. Just like one day, I'm sure I will. And I went out to answer questions, to be a shining beacon of everything our shop had to offer, to survive and thrive and make something out of what was offered to me, because that's what she would do. It's what she does. I love you, Mum. Oh, well. Oh. That was very 
well realised um, and extremely sad. Are we allowed to swear on this show? <laughs> it's fucking lootly. Yeah, yes. Because <laughs> fucking hell. Yeah. Uh, fucking hell, man. Oof. <laughs> I, I will say, for anyone listening who's concerned, um, this, this story goes down before it goes up, but bear with me. Um, my mum got the all clear from the cancer lymph nodes, and then we found out it had spread to her brain. But uh, we did an experimental treatment thing with stem cells and science. I don't understand science, but science. <laughs> and um, she she pulled through. She'll, she'll never be quite the same, but my mum is alive and well. I don't think she listens. But if she does, like I said in the story, I love you, mum. And I'm just glad I've got you for a bit longer. Oh, that's lovely. Oh. For the genre thing, just to explain, um, we I googled a list the other day, uh, because this is the sort of thing we do, of unusual genre, and one of them, and I'm going to... Uh, cashier Memoir was the title, wasn't it, Ben? It was, yeah. yeah. Nice. And that led me down this path mm. of writing something from my time as a as a cashier. Yeah. So I've written quite a lot of nonfiction at this point, autobiographical nonfiction. Yeah. It's one of the things I write for Ginger Nuts of Horror. I write a column called My Life and Horror. And oh, it's cool. mainly talking about childhood influences. So I talk about, you know, reading Stephen King's It at 11 or watching yeah. Robocop at a very young age. But one of the things that I've, I've done in that essay series from time to time and more as the series has progressed, actually, as it's reaching its conclusion now, is also talk about life events. And yeah. I have written about, I mean, I haven't, I haven't had that particular circumstance, um, thankfully. But I've, obviously, we've all been through things, right? We've all been through stuff. So it was quite extraordinary for me to be on the other side of that and hearing someone else do that thing that I've done a few times now. Because it, it's incredibly powerful. The way you did that was incredibly powerful. Um, I don't, forgive me, I haven't listened to enough episodes of the show to know a, a great deal about your writing voice, but the voice of that piece was just so authentic and so strong. And it really, really resonated. It was a very, very impressive piece of writing, I thought. Genuinely, I was I'm really quite moved. It's yeah, I'd agree. I would say, and I mean Ben, we've we've had a decade worth of conversations. Something that sounds how I talk, and it was yes, it that's, pulled that's out of me. Very true. That it was. It felt like I was having a conversation with you, um, and uh, I think that sort of that hard hitting nature of the. Uh, the the emotion in it actually i i did i you know i wasn't i wasn't crying but i was i was definitely tearing up by the end um because it was it was a tough time and it, that felt very real the way that you told it it was so, so I, I i'll say this on the podcast that took me less than 30 minutes to write mm. and there were no mm. edits i just let it happen mm. and there were details from that day like the sound of the clock ticking in that room that came back to me as I recalled the day. I loved, I loved the detail of the Tesco meal deal. I like the amount of, the amount of break rooms I've sat in at various different uh, yeah. sort of um, customer service role jobs. Yeah, just looking at a Tesco meal deal and being like, "Well, I guess that's the correct amount of calories, but I'm not looking forward to it." <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I did a 
I, I did a trilogy of essays about the year that I spent working in a pub when I was sort of 20 and I had no yeah. clue what I was doing, GCSEs and nothing else and no real idea of what a future might even look like and that I got three My Life in Horror essays out of that so I guess it was not entirely <laughs> wasted time. But yeah, definitely. It's the same thing though. It's that, it's that the, the drudgery of it and the kind of the customer service thing. I mean, is there... Uh, it, it's it's got to be in any in any modern reinterpretation of Dante's circles of hell, right? <laughs> yeah. Working yeah. in retail's got to be one of a, a retail shift that never ends has surely oh, got to God be damn. one of them. Um, the other the other line that really got me from the break room that I thought was authentic genius was a fridge older than I am. Yeah, it's a great line on its own, and it's it's actually nice as well because it's it's almost a moment of levity in in a you know in a very kind of poignant and otherwise very kind of you know emotionally resonant moment but it actually i thought when you unpack that it's actually also got a kind of intimation of mortality about it itself you know the the concept of age and and that being in there and actually it was kind of although it was you know on the surface a quote-unquote funny line actually it, it resonated perfectly with the emotion of the rest of the piece mm. so it 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 managed to be evocative, but still, and also obviously just evocative of the environment. I appreciate that it's you know yeah. it's probably a true statement. That I'm, I'm not you know I'm not saying you made up that, but it just <laughs> something about the phrasing really struck me very hard. I thought that's just that's great, and I'm it's interesting to hear that that this was a this was a half hour thing that this just came out pretty much whole, which is uh, it, that's one of those things like with writing that I, I find doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it's normally a gift. You know, what you end up with is normally something that you can kind of, something you can be proud of, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's that's really interesting. That's a nice way to look at it, this idea of it being a gift to have brought something out so so complete in such a short amount of time. I like that because it does, as you say, it does happen, but not very often. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a gift because like. <laughs> because you know my average number of drafts i think even for a short story is like five or six yeah. so if i get one in two then that's just like <laughs> i feel like i mean I, I have actually gifted myself a substantial amount of time at that point quite yes, apart from anything yeah. else so yeah yeah um, definitely so, so the other factor here is obviously um i know your your recent book a song for the end this uh, novella that you have um that's landed you on the shortlist yeah um which is really exciting is is about a there's a there's a rock and roll band element to it isn't there yeah um and nico is in a band called dead man's whiskey which yeah. uh, does uh, lots of rock and one of the the big song the sort of ballad that you did for that band that you wrote was was also about your your mother and her and her illness yeah. and your relationship with her so i think it's really fascinating that you've expressed yourself creatively in two mediums with this now and obviously it's a huge subject matter for you and it's big impactful stuff but for it to be so different each time is quite interesting because the song is called make you proud um mm, yeah and it's all about how you know nico's going to do stuff to make her proud and everything he does it comes from the uh, you know it comes from the like emo intelligence and emotions that she gave him as a as a child you know in his upbringing whereas this is far more dialed in on a the moment of your pain about it um so it's been it's really interesting to pair those two i think i was certainly doing it whilst i was listening to you talk looking at them they they bookend the whole well not the whole saga because in in many ways it's still going but that that experience of my mum going through cancer 
I'd, I'd told that kind of end of the story of, you know, now you've, you've had your surgery. So to, to give a bit of background on the song kit, my mum mm. my struggles making short-term memory now. Right. And I thought, well, how, how do I hack this? How do I, how do I have a, a button my mum can push that says, I love you and I'm doing everything I can for you. And it, you know, my band are gracious enough to have worked with me to create a song. Um, it didn't quite turn into a bunch you can push because the woman cannot use YouTube. But, <laughs> <laughs> just still to this day. Uh, I love the movie Dead Man's Shoes, but every time if she phones me to ask how to do it, she I'll say, right, it's dead, dead, man's, man's. <laughs> Is it shoes? N- no, that's just a recommended mum. And it comes up at the top because you press it every time. <laughs> but yeah, it kind of, it tells this story of, her getting through the other side and us dealing with it, but I'd, I've never really. And you were there; you were on the front line, Ben. I remember you came down to to see me in London, and I did, yeah. And we we went to a little pub on the River Thames and had some very deep conversations uh, over a. Is there any other kind? Table <laughs> gradually filling the glass. Notoriously it's... shit at small talk, so that was. Ah, uh... <laughs> uh, you see, you're that's my kind of people, right there. Okay. <laughs> But yeah, it's been that was extremely cathartic, and thank you for both being with me through it. It was quite difficult to read, so I'm glad that I'm glad we yeah, got through. You did very I'm, well. I'm glad it was cathartic too, because I mean that's the other thing about the. I mean, a couple of things actually. I just want to pick up on one was what you said about how you found you found yourself recalling stuff as you wrote. Yeah, absolutely. That's the that's the dark magic of doing this kind of autobiographical essay because as i say i've done as it happens i've done quite a few of them now i've done over 50 for yeah. ginger nuts and I'm, I'm 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 going to round the series out i think and even 60 so i've only got four or five more to go but the the best ones without doubt have always been the ones where i sat down and it's been like i've had absolutely no plan at all beyond i'm going to write about this and this is seeing temple of doom at the cinema when i was six or this is remembering my version of what happened on 9 11 because yeah. you know everyone's version of that is the same and slightly different or you know remembering where i was when i heard about columbine whatever it might be and it's there's a mixture like i say some of it's autobiographical some of it's like but yeah what's incredible is you start writing and it just it just arrives all of this stuff just comes back it's it's really really eerie and in fact i mean i i hadn't really i'm not sure i'd put this together before until i started talking but i think in a weird way some of some of what goes on in the story of a song for the end is kind of about that really there's one of the things i mean that story is partly about truth but it's also it becomes a bit about memory and a yeah. bit about the way our brains work in terms of processing memory and i mean i don't want to give it away because it's kind of an important twist in the book but <laughs> but but that yeah made, that made me think of that there is something about how i mean the the thesis that doesn't really give anything away is i i believe that we remember more than we think we remember yeah, I believe that our brains actually retain vast quantities of memory that we can't access in the way we access normal memory, but it's all in there somewhere. Um, so yeah, I'm not. I, I mean, I'm pleased to hear it because it it makes me feel a little bit less like I'm a crazy person. <laughs> Maybe it's something that actually does happen, but it's yeah. That was I was fascinated to hear that. So yeah, uh, it's a hell of a genre to write in. Is that so? Is that honestly? Is that your first? Is that your first nonfiction essay? That is my first foray into nonfiction. I'm, I mean, I've, I'm honoured to have been here. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, uh, if, if I may, do more. 
because you've got you've got something yeah. there. You've got a voice. Oh, nothing else has happened to me. I'm afraid. Absolutely <laughs> not, <laughs> not true. I find that incredibly unlikely. Yeah, it's, it's not likely. You always get into <laughs> scrapes. Just just don't write one about your banjo string. Let's not have that out there. <laughs> oh well, tune in next week. Well, no, that's, that's Kit's interview. Tune in the week after. <laughs> Speak. So I guess Kit. I guess banjo strings getting added to the list of prompts. Then I, <laughs> I got you. Oh no, it's happening again. <laughs> At the request of a guest, Nico. <laughs> right. No, away from my penis. Kit, <laughs> tell me you've written something cheerier. You haven't, have you? I can feel it. I've never said that before to anybody. <laughs> I've got some terrible news for you. Oh, no. It's not any cheer. Well, I don't know if it's, yeah. It's not cheery. Let's just leave it on that. The hardest break. There are. 206 bones in the human body. Over half of them are contained in your hands and feet. 27 each hand, 26 each foot. That's something to think about, isn't it? The entire skeleton, the frame for all that lovely meat we inhabit, and there, at the extremities, so many small bones, interlocked by cartilage and tendon and muscles, granting us balance, allowing motion, instrument manipulation. Oh, Please, don't struggle. The bonds are quite secure, I assure you. As I was saying, over half the bones in the hands and feet. Rather dismayingly easy to break when you look into it. A little too fragile, in my opinion. Rather one in the eye for intelligent design. Hands and feet. Not merely so useful, but so necessary. And yet, well, you read of someone breaking a toe by simply stubbing it on a doorframe, don't you? As for fingers... All it takes is a moderate hammer blow, and... Goodness, you are excitable, aren't you? How amusing. Why don't you take your own advice? You know, relax and give it your best shot. That's what you told me, wasn't it? So then, good for the goose and all that? Besides, nothing hard about a broken hand, is there? Such a fascinating question you ask, though. Such a clever question. No doubt it's designed to elicit certain personality responses. I imagine you've got a chart somewhere allowing you to plot someone based on their response. No, no please, don't try and answer. Rather a futile gesture. I thought about it, you know. On my way home, I had time to think. One does when it's a 45-minute walk to one's house and one cannot afford the bus fare, let alone the cab. Lots of time to cogitate, to ruminate. Yes, all right, even fulminate. And I realised I didn't actually know the answer. So I looked it up. You're going to want to pay attention to this. You see, interestingly, it rather depends on what you mean by hardest. Example, the smallest bone in your body is the stapes. It's a tiny splinter that sits in your ear and together with two other similarly small bones is responsible for transmitting the vibrations of sound to your brain. Now, one of those could be snapped between two fingers, providing it was first removed. To fracture that bone in situ, though, that's actually surprisingly tricky. Perhaps a very loud noise might do it, or a gigantic concussive blow to the ear. No? Oh, very well, I think I agree. Besides... 
how would we know for sure we'd succeeded? A hearing loss could as well be a burst eardrum. Moving on. There's the petrous part of the temporal bone. This bone is incredibly dense, designed, or rather evolved, of course, as you may have gathered from the name, to protect the temporal lobe of your brain and the ear canals, housing that rather delightful tiny stapes we discussed earlier. Even in skeletons that are dug up after thousands of years, it's not unusual to find the temporal bones entirely intact, even in otherwise damaged or desecrated remains. So I think we have a contender, yes? Of course, bone that dense, the blow would have to be colossal, and the chances of brain damage, even fatality, would be considerable. Still, something to think about, isn't it? On the other hand, on my walk home, my rather long, damp walk home, I found my mind turning more and more on the precise phrase, hardest. Hardest to achieve? Hardest to survive? Or perhaps hardest to endure? Yes, I thought that might pique your interest. You'll recall, of course, that was the spin I brought to the question, much to my detriment. And so as I walked through the rain, as the drizzle became a downpour that ensured that my one remaining half-decent suit was quite ruined by the time I made it back to my flat, I pondered that and added it to my research list. And here's what I found. Coming in at number four, the clavicle, known more colloquially as the collarbone, this bone, here. Yes. Apparently even a hairline fracture is very painful and anything more serious can often require surgery. It's amazing how powerful and fragile we are, isn't it? Moving on at number three, we have ribs, beloved target of pulp crime and horror writers, and it, it's obvious when you think about it. Your ribs move with every single breath you take, so naturally a broken rib is uniquely debilitating. Victims report a sensation of burning, stabbing pain every time they try and inhale. Our most natural, instinctive movement becomes a source of acute discomfort and misery. Nasty. And of course, should the injury be serious enough, there's the possibility of a splinter of bone piercing one of the many vital organs the cage exists to protect, at which point... Well, so... Number two, and this one surprised me, though it makes sense when you think about it, is the tailbone. I, I suspect the implications are clear enough that I can just let them sit with you. Oh dear. Dear me, I am sorry. Un unintentional, I assure you. And so we reach number one, and by happy coincidence, it's also the strongest bone in the body, the femur, or thigh bone. A combination of the thickness of the bone, the surrounding muscle mass, and the necessity of the bone for walking all conspire to make it, without question, the hardest break in both senses of the word. Remarkable, isn't it? Might almost make one believe in some kind of destiny. I think this sledgehammer may do the job. I'll try and get this done in one, but honestly, I've never done anything remotely like this before, so please do bear with me, and perhaps, if the pain doesn't entirely blot out all higher brain function, you might take the opportunity to reflect on whether it's really appropriate to ask someone interviewing for a job waiting tables in a chain restaurant about their hardest break, and, for that matter, whether, should you decide to ask the question anyway, laughter is an appropriate response to someone discussing the loss of their father. I am, of course, fully aware that it's a difficult economy, but in a final analysis, we are all still human beings, and a little human dignity shouldn't be too much to ask, 
Should it? All right, then. Here we go. Wish me luck. Oh, wow, that was really chilling. That was oh, so I good. Was, I, I was, I was cringe. Like, I was like moving away from my microphone because I was your the way that you performed it was actually really chilling me. Um, my my first note just says voice is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Just the the cadence, the intonation, even the the kind of lilting way in which the mm. words came, which it, the subject matter and the words almost don't pair, and that made it work perfectly <laughs> to talk so flippantly about you know what he was going to do was oh delightfully <laughs> creepy <laughs> thank you i appreciate that the, the voice i mean just uh, where the voice came from i knew the idea almost straight away because i did exactly the research that the guy in the story does mm. i thought Normally, when I work into a brief or I'm trying to write for an anthology, I normally reject the first two ideas I get. I normally go with the third idea I get because my theory is everyone has the first, the same first idea. The second idea, another 50% will get. By the time you get to the third idea, you've maybe got a chance of something original. But for this one, I didn't have time. So I had to go with the first idea, which was this. Um, so I did exactly the same research he did. But as I was writing it, I realized... I think it was, I've recently did a podcast about the House of Cards trilogy, you know, the House of Cards to play the king and, and the final yeah. cut. And I suddenly realized it was Francis Urca if instead of becoming the evil prime minister, he'd, he'd been, you know, his, his luck had just been terrible and he'd ended up, ended up at the age of whatever, you know, 55, trying to interview in, in, in 2020 to get a job in a, you know, in a restaurant somewhere. That is but, excellent but, headcanon. I like that. But with all of that, anger and fury and you know stuff he had inside him and this is and it was just the final indignity you know i was just gonna say the the way that the story one of the first lines was uh, talking about the lovely meat we inhabit and that was a real indicator to me that we were just straight up onto a winner here because <laughs> that was that was so as i say chilling and just just horrible enough but not horrible enough to to really walk away from it and oh it was lovely and then um, at the end, when he gets up on his high horse about, you know, people treating each other well and this kind of thing, I, I, I just, I love the way that the emotion uh, of the character tied through the whole piece so neatly. Um, I, I thought that, I thought it was a really good job. Well done. Oh, thank there you. There was one line that took me from, this is sounding pretty good, to, oh, shit. And that was, oh, please, don't struggle. Yeah, yeah, and I went, I went on, and then was like, I'm not going to take any more notes because I just want to listen. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's an interesting moment, isn't it? Because um, we, we spoke a little bit last week um, in in the last episode about the way that narrators function in stories, or whether it's short stories or novels, it doesn't really matter. Mm. And something like that is like um, is a clear trigger that uh, that a writer can put in to indicate a certain path that the audience and the reader has to go down because immediately you know that it, there's a that the point of view of the story is bound and yeah. gag you know um and it can be used uh used too much or incorrectly but this was this was just spot on like we we felt we were a captive audience in two senses literally yeah. in the story we were a captive audience and then also 
the way that this man was talking about breaking the bones in the human body was incredibly enthralling. So the, the I thought that worked well. Parallel of knowing, you know, that that freedom to stop listening for who really wanted, you know. Mm. Those of you listening at home can hit pause, or we could have ripped our headphones out and out the <laughs> window or something. Uh, but not being able to tear yourself away, yeah. While while that that viewpoint you're you're inhabiting, and it's it's super strange because we, I felt like I was inhabiting both viewpoints by the end, and maybe it's because I'm not okay. But like, <laughs> I, I, I felt for the guy. I was like, yeah, I've definitely been in situations where I wished I could hit someone with a hammer. But well, this is, yeah. I mean, this is it. I had the idea and what I didn't have almost, I think, until I got about halfway through was the motivation. Yeah. Like I knew what I wanted to do. Like fundamentally, I knew the shape of it. And as I say, I, I kind of, I mean, the stuff that I pulled out there is that is the, the incident. I mean, I kind of. I felt a bit bad about it, really, but I thought the way I rationalised it was, well, no, the character would do what you've done. He'd Google it and he'd look it up, and then he, of yeah. course, he. So it's it's okay. You're not cheating, but, um, but yeah, I I I wasn't sure what was motivating him, and it was, I think it was somewhere around developing the voice as that was coming, and the voice was starting to suggest this kind of, as I said, this kind of, you know, um, somewhere between middle age and elderly, you know, um, sort of middle class upper middle class guy and that was when i started to think you know that's when it started to and it's like so what you know what leads that person to this and i wanted it to be something i did want it to be something petty but also relatable yeah you know that felt quite important to me and interestingly i mean i don't know that was the other weird thing but you know i didn't want to say anything when you were doing your reading because I, I didn't want to but there are some quite weird little parallels yeah between this piece and yours and... yeah ill parents uh, yeah, exactly there are a few and it's that was a little bit spooky but i didn't as i say i don't want to say anything because i don't want to you know kind of preempt it but it yeah stuff that turns up on the podcast when it happens because it does actually happen quite a lot um, right but you know it's never intentional it, it's impossible like you know none of us have heard these stories before today mm. um but there are links like i i'm actually um, a little bit trepidatious now because my narrator has a very similar voice to your narrator yeah, that's interesting. Um, so I'm I'm going to still perform it in the way that I was going to perform it, but it's it's very strange that we that we went in a similar direction. I think hmm. I think your oration was likely better than mine will be, but um, the yeah these these little threads that connect stories mm. when when you approach a prompt because there's no reason that the hardest break should have two stories with ill parents in them. Nope, that's, no, but it's but it happens and it's. It's really cool. I like it. It gives me the, it gives me little shivers. I love it. The thing <laughs> I kind of dug within your story, and it, it, you know, based on what we've just said, in the same way that we, you know, you get the prompt and you work through it, and what does it really mean? Mm. Your narrator had that same thing, had that same experience, but just more literally. Yeah. Again, I was a little. I've got to be honest. I was a bit nervous about that. I was wondering if I was like tapping on the fourth wall a little too loudly there. I sometimes I don't do that very often generally, but because I knew this was going to be, I mean, I knew it was going to be first person because I knew I wanted to read it and I prefer, yeah. I always prefer first person for readings because it's, you know, for obvious reasons, um, cause you get to perform it. But I was, yeah, I was slightly in the same way that I was slightly nervous about, you know, effectively dumping the internet research into the, into the face. I was also slightly nervous about like, this is almost meta and i'm very very wary of meta inherently so 
but I'm glad it worked. That's that's good. I'm pleased. You don't mind a bit of cheeky meta. <laughs> oh, it was a fantastic story. Thank you for telling it. Thank you. Well, thanks well, for the prompt. You're welcome. There's one more story to be read. You're up, Ben. The hardest break. They called me a hero today, along with the others. Barnsley, Moore, Walker, and Turner. We never held a rifle or piloted an aircraft. We worked with numbers and letters for the most part, tumbling them through matrices of our own design and worrying at them like sheepdogs gone savage. Those years of war hold their place in my mind, along with the ciphers we unwound. They say that happens with trauma. The details of a day can be held, perfectly preserved in the ice of fear. I know that to be true, as I have years of alphanumeric problems suspended within my memory. For myself, I know that my mind was once sharp as a freshly cut pencil. But the way I used it wore it down to a nub, and now I fear the lead has snapped. There's a binary view of our history that has developed from that most dangerous of outlooks. Self-righteousness. In truth, everyone involved did unspeakable things, or were in some way party to them. Those bullets, made so bravely by the Canary Girls, were slotted into rifles wielded by our brave boys, and fired into the flesh of other humans. I struggle to believe that world-ending politics took place entirely on the front lines. In a war so mired in half-truths, and so shrouded by a complex web of imperialistic intentions and greed. We were told that our actions at the park shortened the war by two to four years. Even now, my contribution to the war can be seen in numbers. They are beginning to calculate the cost of lives the world paid for that war. That number could conceivably exceed 60 million. A rough calculation, then, would lead one to claim that we directly saved somewhere between 20 and 50 million more lives from being lost. The scale of that human arithmetic is unfathomable, even to me. Yet along with that calculation, one must take into account the other factors. Human error, human entanglements, and human duplicity. Back then we worked out of the sheds at the park, and the twisted joke became that each shed was a battleship on the front lines of the intelligence war. Our team was so small, and our shed so poorly constructed, that we laughingly called it a fishing boat instead. Turner was given the steering oar of our small boat, due to his past experience and seniority. I worked under him with Barnsley, Moore, and Walker. We strove to crack everything that came across our desks, and would come alive when Turner delivered a new puzzle for us from HQ. It was not all work, though. We exercised our appetites for food, drink, and pleasure together. The bond we forged felt unbreakable. Barnsley died shortly in the wake of the war's end from a brain hemorrhage, and Moore drank himself in front of a train following the funeral. Witnesses said they saw him clamber off the underground platform and walk along the rails towards the lights. I felt at the time that I would have liked to shake those bystanders until their teeth fell out. But really, it was more I wanted to berate. After that, Walker and I grew distant as the grief drove a wedge into an already widening gap in our diverging lives. His mind failed him last year, and he now sits in an overstuffed armchair, staring out at the small garden of his care home. None of them knew what I know. You see, Turner visited me just before he went to America, in the last days of the war. 
We held a silence for a while in my kitchen. For my part, I had felt some strange tension. Tension between us for some time, and was waiting for an explanation. He eventually told me how they'd recruited him, and tried to explain what he'd done and why he'd done it. The rationale slipped past me as my mind focused on the numbers. Two in five, he told me. Two out of every five of the ciphers had been allied rather than Axis. We'd been breaking our own codes the hard way all those years. The dread realisation I felt fell over my body like a lead blanket. I half hoped at the time I had the rage to go for him, perhaps take a kitchen knife to him, or bind him tight for Scotland Yard to deal with. I did nothing. All I could do was think about the men we had killed on both sides of the war. He apologised, like he had broken a glass, and left my life forever. I never told the others, much good that it did them, and haven't written a word of it until now. They called me a hero today. Signed, James Bennett. Yes. Yes. I'm having some of that. So... <laughs> We were talking about weird coincidences. I I live within walking distance of Bletchley Park. Oh, that's very spooky. Okay. And I was there over the summer with my kid because she, you know, is interested in stuff. Isn't it so, great? Yeah, I, it is. I, I, I went, sorry, um, if you're comfortable, how old is your daughter? She's uh, 11. She's just started secondary school. 11. Yeah, I, so yeah. I was a similar age when I when I was taken as well, and it had a real impact on me. Yeah. Um. I... Uh, yeah, I thought it was fantastic, you know, especially with the reconstructed, um, I think they called it the Colossus or something, the big, the big yeah. computer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just so exciting. And um, I uh, I grew up partially um, in Enfield, London. Um, right. And uh, there's a, there's a, there was a big munitions factory there um, that had, um, that we, that we also went to visit and they had the, uh, the pictures up of the, the women who worked making bullets? Um, yeah. Who would get you know these sort of stained fingers, uh, the stained yellow fingers? So they would so they were called canary girls, I think, because they were just around sulfur all day. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so, for whatever reason, it just sort of I started thinking about that, you know, that childhood memory of engaging with World War Two stuff, mm. uh, because the first well actually it wasn't it was i think it was the ninth thing that came to my mind you know you're talking about dismissing <laughs> yeah 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 i just I, I kept on going and going we very nearly got a story about someone breaking someone's serve in tennis i'll tell you that um, nice <laughs> um there's the bet but, i know yeah, yeah exactly yeah um but yeah so i wanted to sort of put all that in and uh i mean there's a lot there i really like the one of the things I really liked was the way it tried to unpack, I mean, obviously even before you get to the twist, but the way it's trying to unpack the complexity of the of the conflict. It, it, it's a perpetual bugbear of mine as a, as I mean, as, as one of the, you know, as an absolute amateur student of history, I'm not any kind of study, but like the way that this entire country has built a mythology on the back of world war ii that has become such a delusion that we end up doing shit like brexit to ourselves mm. it, like it's quite extraordinary to me how that national myth is, of of straightforward goodies versus baddies has become 
so poisonous and dangerous to us. I, I wrote a non-fiction book about the Ken Russell Who movie, Tommy, and one of the things that Tommy's completely obsessed with is World War II and Russell's queasiness about the way that the war dead are memorialized and, and, and all kinds of stuff. I mean, Tommy's about a million things because it's mm. Ken Russell and he's a lunatic, but, um, mm-hmm. and Pete Townsend, who was also a lunatic when he wrote it. Um, but, but that is one of the themes, the myth, the national myth of world war two. And I, and that's not to say, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Cause in, in a lot of ways, arguably it was the last just war because the Nazis did have to be fought. They did have to be defeated. There's no question yeah. about that. They mm. were one of the great evils that, that we've ever produced as a species. But that doesn't automatically make us unquestionably, uncomplicatedly the goodies, right? No, no. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's always more complicated than that. And I loved, I I felt that you really, that's one of the things you were getting at with the story. And I loved hearing that. I thought that was really, and I think it's quite gutsy to pick the perspective of someone who was that close to it. But it's also, it makes sense that it would be someone in intelligence that would be doing that because they've got that, that, it's such a weird world, isn't it? You're kind of, you're in one way you're really really in it and one way you're one of the most important cogs in the entire machine but you're also distant the whole time you're alienated from it everything that's going on yes. um i mean in particular with these code breakers like yeah every every minute every second that you don't break this code is effectively death you know death right lives yeah. in the balance yeah. yeah yeah exactly yeah um so yeah no i i yeah that's um as I, as, I, as I said, just sort of during the story from the racist point of view, this idea of this binary view on World War Two is it's really short sighted. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, just interesting mentioning film because um, the line, this idea that world ending politics could take place entirely on the front lines. It, I, I was I was thinking about that as I as I wrote it, with I think it's Saving Private Ryan, where you see two German soldiers trying to surrender. Hmm. And they get shot, and it's and yeah. it's such a, it's it happens so sort of callously, like almost at the side of the shot. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, and it's actually a really big deal. <laughs> yeah, um, there's a little fact about that bit. Those the two actors are speaking Czech. Oh no! And really? if you translate <laughs> what they're saying in Czech, it's please, we're not German. Uh, well, that, I mean, it's heartbreaking, but also yeah. it sort of that's doesn't perfect. matter. Like a like a front a soldier that's surrendered doesn't, you know, you don't shoot them in that yeah. scenario. Yeah. Um, but the this fervor is depicted in that movie as yeah. existing on the front lines. You know, this. Well, I've got to kill them because they're the enemy, isn't it? Yeah. It's terribly um, American as an idea, isn't it? This. <laughs> well, I, possibly, I don't mean exclusively sort of, American, but I mean yeah. there's there's a, a great sect of America that has this belief in being the good guys, the freedom people. The, but it's, you know, if you if your freedom involves building a very specific set of rules you want to live within, all you're doing is designing your own cage. You're not actually being free. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I think, I think, I think, I think empire always justifies itself by talking about how brilliant it is. You know, I mean, the British empire may have talked about fair play rather than freedom. We might not quite have had the brass neck to describe what we were doing as spreading freedom, <laughs> but we certainly were, you know, spreading fair play and the rule of law and decent education and religion and blah, blah, blah. I mean, we always made a, you know, tried to make a virtue of our barbarism and theft, you know, <laughs> it's, like, yeah, yeah. Well, it's what empire does. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, Got to get our teeth from somewhere, does. kit. <laughs> <laughs> We really don't. Um, yeah, 
I can I can do without it. Wait, coffee. Yeah. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, no, don't don't mess with coffee. Yeah, just <laughs> That's a joke's a joke, chaps. But let's not take it too far. <laughs> I'm going to go back to your story, Ben. Um, mm. On the perspective, there was, and I was really struggling to to put the words together early in the story for how what I was hearing. But he spoke like a mathematician. Yeah, and it was very clinical and numerical, and you could feel it. And it, and there were little turns of phrase. Like I wrote down, I wanted to shake them until their teeth fell out. It meant that those little bursts of sort of flowery language and creativity felt like something cracking the surface. And yeah. this, this man who was clearly very methodical, something inside him wasn't that mathematician anymore. And that really served the story, I think. I think that's a great observation. I just want to build on that. The the couple of that I picked out were different, but it's the same thing. The the way you used the description of equations, mm. I thought that was really strong. And and obviously the perfect metaphor, that's exactly where his mind will go. And similarly, the, the image of the pencil wearing down, again, given what they did, that made sense. But then you drop in sheepdogs gone savage. Mm. A fantastic image. Just absolutely arresting, but also situated in the time and place. That's what's clever about that as a as a as a line I, is I, that I, yeah, I, like the, I like the you that you like that line i also sort of dropped that in order to indicate that they were there was a shepherd right um, which was a very veiled thing about turner in the first paragraph essentially but yes that was yeah i like i like that you you enjoyed the, the this idea yeah the tumbling through the matrices it was sort of yeah it would it the would, other line that really really hit me sorry but the the other line that really really hit me very powerfully and it was very simple was the the line about um him standing on the tracks and walking towards the lights mm. i don't know why but there was i mean that was just an incredible piece of description but for me that was almost impossibly vivid and then he followed it up with an image about a widening gap i don't know if that was deliberate or not but that actually made me smile <laughs> no it wasn't deliberate but i did i almost took it out because i thought it was too uh, punny no, um, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, hey, I did a tailbone gag. Okay, you so did, you did. Like you got, you got a laugh from me as well on that. I have to say. You <laughs> <did>. So. <laughs> so no, I'm all about the punny. Don't worry. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know that that uh, walking on the rails towards the lights thing. It it, it really did. Um, that just sort of jumped into my head when I was mm. thinking. Um, because obviously there was a. The, I don't think. There, there was there was this. They're clearly all. Um, it's it's sort of relevant to the story, but I think that they're all they were sort of in like, in like a homosexual clique, right? Um, and this idea that that um, Moore drank himself in front of the train after one of them died, I think, makes it very real. It, it brings to life that the problems, sort of around the problems that Turing would have had, yeah, um, yeah. Of, of having to exist in a world where you aren't accepted, yeah. um, after doing so much for your country, yeah. Um, so I was sort of hoping to bring some of that into play as well. Um, and yeah, even... I found that really moving. I thought that were really, that image just really that was a haunting image. I thought it really got me. I'm glad. Again, I think it played into the math thing as well. That, that the moving towards the train, that increasing certainty of death. Mm. That well, if it, if I stay here, it might see me. Was what I got <laughs> from it. So I, oh, I nice. to move closer. Because mm. they won't have the time to stop. 
like that. Yeah. There's something very deliberate about it, isn't there? Yeah, I think you're right. There's something very, and it's it's agency too, right? It's it's a conscious effort. It's a conscious choice. There's no, there's no, there's no possibility to imply that it was somehow an accident. It's it makes it a completely deliberate act, and also just the kind of I don't know. You start unpacking and thinking like, what's going on in your brain in those last few seconds? You know, what is it that impels or compels someone to that moment? With a walking towards the fucking train. Wow. In my read, I, I definitely see that as if, you know, you'd be thinking something like, I, uh, my actions have taken so many lives. What's one more? Mm. That real, oh, God, yeah, that sense of bleak, desperate. What is this episode, guys? I know, it's very bleak. Yeah. Isn't it? yeah. Fuck. <laughs> just, just, to, just to make it all the more bleak, I also think it's a particularly selfish way to commit suicide, I have to say. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It's true. Like, it's particularly like it happens quite a lot on the London Underground. Yeah. Um, and I don't, obviously, you both know what those trains look like, but for any of our audience that doesn't know what they look like, they have the, the driver sits up front in what's effectively yeah. a full window. So if, if you're, if somebody's on the track and they, and they, you know, they've come out of nowhere and the tra train just goes through them, the train driver sees every single yeah. second of that. Um, so oh, the amount of PTSD for tube drivers. And there's, I don't know how, I don't know the statistics, but there's, I mean, I'd imagine there's dozens of, I mean, I just remember from when I lived in London, like it would happen a few times a year. Mm. I mean, it's just, yeah, absolutely. It's horrific. Uh, I've had a few conversations with uh, the drummer in Dead Man's Whiskey. His dad now retired, but was a firefighter. And they're the first responders for that. Oh, Lord. And oh, a lot dear, of his dear. job has involved, and he, he it's incredible listening to him tell his stories because he tells them with such mirth because right. it's clearly, it's a coping mechanism. Of course it is. One yeah, of the last things he did was he, he went on call to, to the Grenfell tragedy. And Ooh. that's the only one he doesn't, there's no sort doesn't, of levity in yeah. it. But he, he yeah. told me this fantastic story about they They had a new, uh, new medical officer guy. Andy, I'm going to name check you. You won't mind. And if you do, well, Sorry, uh, but he, he, you know, he arrived on the scene at this underground station and he crawled under the train, which is already horrible. And uh, yeah. to quote him, you know, the guy was mince, just right. was nothing left yeah. of, of of person. Mm. And when he came out, this new medical officer had arrived and uh, you know, he said, oh, hello, I'm, you know, Mr. Medical, the med new medical officer. And Andy said, oh, OK, well, just to just to fill you in, um, the, the guy is definitely dead. And uh, the medical officer said to him, well, I don't think you're qualified to make that call. <laughs> so Andy said, well, feel free to go under, mate, but I don't think you'll like it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think that's the, you know, that, that just becomes a reality for so many people, you know, that you're affecting yeah. the driver and emergency services and in, to a lesser extent, everyone who's trying to travel, it becomes an inconvenience yeah. for them. It's not quite the same emotional weight, but it's, it, yeah, it's definitely, like you say, a selfish way to yeah. to go. There are, yes, it's um, it's unpleasant. But before we get off uh, this sort of fairly fairly dark and unpleasant and sad subject matter, um, just from like a like a, a feedback workshopping point of view, how mm -hmm. clear is it that this is a suicide note? Oh, <laughs> because uh... because to me. Upon reading it now to you, 
I feel like it's not entire. It's not crystal clear that that's it, what this is. It felt like he knew he was dying already, and had written this letter to someone, as opposed to he'd written it in order to take his life uh, before taking right. his life. Yeah, it felt like a confessional, didn't it? Yeah, mm. maybe even a to be open in the event of my death or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Right. I think it possibly needs some more words to it because uh, sometimes I, I sort of ramble on and I was I was really trying not to and this is just over 800 words so it's right at the minimum mm. that we say for this um, and but I felt like if upon reading it then that it needed just a little bit extra just talking about you know at, at what event did they call him a hero today so because the idea yeah. is that he's basically been honoured at like um, a memorial service a sure. memorial day service and having it's just become too much like him knowing that he in his own mind is not a hero and they mm. keep calling him a hero it's just i mean just, i have to say that aspect of it i really like too and we haven't really talked about it but it, it really is one of the threads that's going through is survivor guilt mm. i mean it's not not that he doesn't have things to feel guilty about necessarily but still and i don't i think that's one of those it's funny i was i, I, I was thinking about this a lot like any any remotely realistic action movie any sequel to any remotely realistic action movie should be the main character in the first movie just going through ptsd because like anyone who actually went through anything that happens in an action movie would actually be psychologically affected for years afterwards you Except know john mcclain because yeah. he's a badass well this is what i mean like they're just not psychologically honest funny enough yeah. the only movie series that ever came anywhere close to doing it was rambo and unfortunately the movies were so god awful it didn't matter but you know the last <laughs> movie had him popping pills and try you know dealing with the fact he's got ptsd by building a giant set of tunnels under his farmhouse and it was i was actually thought it it was nearly brilliant unfortunately it was awful but but it was nearly brilliant there was some great ideas in there and stallone was phenomenal it's just he was beaming in a performance from a much better movie but um but yeah, I just think that it, for me, that was, I really appreciated that. And the interesting thing, what's nice about that is once you cue into that, then as a reader, you start asking questions about how much of this is that survivor guilt and how much of this guilt is actually earned. Mm. And that's really fascinating because that's really hard to pass psychologically because we're all terrible judges of ourselves, I think, and yeah. our own characters. So given that it's a first person narrative, I think that's, I think that's really powerful, actually. Thank you. For the, um, for the suicide element, it could work to... Uh, you have to forgive me, I can't remember the name of the character who walked in front of the train. Was it Moore? Moore, yeah. Yeah. Um, to, to have something along the lines of, uh, so I'll be, I'll be off to join Moore now then, perhaps more oh, cleanly than mm. he did it. Mm. Yeah. Or more subtly than he did it. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I wouldn't something want, like I wouldn't want to inconvenience yeah. anyone. Yeah, yeah. Ah, there you go. Ah. Uh. Yes. Uh, well, I think possibly. Um, do you see what I mean about the narrator aspects? Like we sort of the other yeah. tang to it. Um, possibly just different enough that we uh, did turn in the same thing. But that's well, I think um, yours, yours, yours had the period piece thing going for it as well, which did. True. I think you're right. I think did give it enough variety. Yeah. I'll be honest. If I was posh, we would have been three for three, wouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, three for three and sad. <laughs> and <up. laughs> I was going to say, we did back into the misery cast. I'm not quite sure how that happened. I feel I feel like I brought bad vibes with me or something. I'm sorry Absolutely not. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Tiny Bookcase. 
Remember to subscribe, otherwise you're going to miss out on the future fun. Also, tell a friend. If you like this episode, link them to it. We'd be tremendously grateful. You can follow us on Twitter at Bookcase Tiny, Facebook at The Tiny Bookcase, and Instagram at Bookcase Tiny for updates. Speaking of supporting the podcast, well, magic can only take one so far. The Tiny Bookcase is supported by the generosity of its patrons. Those kind souls have really kept my belly full the last year. Let's cast a spell for them, shall we? For a Magnificent Beardery, let's cast the Chinicus Folliculale spell on Gary Laird. For rich ginger tones on the scalp, let us cast the Orangi Hedondo spell for Scott Byrne. And for general fabulousness, why not the Ulala la Mother spell on Matthew McLaren? How do you come up with that shit, man?